Greetings program, hello and welcome to Tronologically Speaking, a movie-by-minute podcast talking about Disney's 1982 movie Tron. This is Minute 53. I'm your host, Duncan Shields, and I am by myself again today, so we'll get a shorter minute with just the sultry tones of my voice. I've got a bit of a cold, so it'll be a little lower and a little more movie trailer in a world. Let's see what happens. All right, what happens in minute 53? Flynn drags Ram's unconscious body away from the wreckage and the pursuing tanks, and they end up hiding in a, air quotes, cave. So, Flynn wakes up, looks over at Ram. We get some more of that sweet, super-flanged, flat sound effect again of them interacting with the ground that Step, 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 almost like tapping on a snare drum or something. And Flynn is all like, ram, ram. The tank is bearing down on them, but they're hidden from view by the wreckage, supposedly. Big chunks. They were big boulders. They were big chunks. Flynn says, come on, we got to get out of here. And drags his unresponsive body off screen just as the tank drives over the wreckage. Now, it's interesting here because, well, Dan, Dan Short does a really good job of being unconscious. That's one thing in movies when you see an actor trying to be unconscious, but their legs are, you know, flopping around to keep them from falling or something. He really appeals to be, appears to be dead weight here. I'm sure he's had a lot of stage fighting um, training. He looks like, like he really knows how to inhabit his body. I think all his theater training really comes to the forefront here because he's not just face acting. He does a lot of body acting in this movie, which is good. Whereas Bruce Boxleitner does a lot of the, you know, brow brow squinching, eye narrowing, you know, face acting kind of thing. Although he is very athletic in the fights, but I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm reading into this a little too much, which is also an occupational hazard from going into a movie minute by minute but yeah here we see just at about the second 12 mark as the tank drives over the wreckage in a pretty sweet you know way of making it look like it's heavy and menacing we see that there's air holes on the side of the tank's gun barrel like a vent not right at the tip but a but a third of the way back i know it's just a design choice uh because i've but uh, I've, like, I've seen those on guns, on other guns. It's, I think on especially powerful rifles, but it looks like they're ports. And I think a lot of guns have ports on them somewhere. Uh, I read that they help vent some of the high-pressure gases from the barrel after a shot to offset some of the recoil, but at the cost of some of the bullet velocity. Sometimes they're long slits. Sometimes they're a series of small holes but it's more common on pistols because pistols don't have to go very far, but you do want to limit that recoil. I know there's different ways. Like I remember I was at a firing range and there was a friend of mine on the firing range with me. She was about five feet tall, very, very tiny. And she had the opportunity to fire some United States police force, nine millimeter recoilless I think there were Glocks, but it was configured in such a way that all of the all of the force from the gun that comes back towards the shooter 
was propelled into the uh, the rack, I guess, or whatever it's called. So it would just sort of, you know, when you rack the gun and bring the old, uh, the, the spent bullet cartridge out and slot a new fresh bullet in, um, all of the recoil was put into that action. So she was firing this gun with no recoil at all. She was just pop, 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 bringing it off, barely shaking. So that was, I, I had just finished firing a three fifty seven, and I'd nearly taken my own eye out with the recoil. So I could really appreciate the, the mechanical uh, miracle that was happening there in, uh, in reducing almost all of that recoil. But uh, that's what some of the, the vents in guns do as too. Like when I think of, like the big the big holes that I think of in the sides of guns, especially like automatics and stuff like that, the big the big ones, they're for more powerful rifles, and they're not vents; they're just called muzzle brakes. So rifles don't commonly have vents on the barrel, as that would rob the bullet of too much velocity. And rifles have shoulder stocks and stuff like that to compensate for the kickback. And you want your rifle to travel, you want your bullet to travel a long distance and be accurate. So you don't want any kind of uh, vent there messing around with any of that. But a handgun benefits from it because you're, yeah, you're only shooting in a short distance. And a handgun with a big recoil will break your wrist if you're holding the gun wrong, which I have found out by experience with that three fifty seven. Oh my gosh. If you go to a gun range, it ruins every action movie for you because you're like, oh, you can't smash through a church window with an Uzi in each hand and be accurate or fire for two minutes. Like I fired an Uzi and they were like, oh, it kicks up a bit. I was like, okay, I gotcha. And my first shot was in the back of the range and the next three were in the ceiling. And I was like, ah, okay, I see. So when you say it kicks up, you mean it kicks up. And I emptied the whole clip in less than a second, just like, oh, it's gone. So, yeah, if you go to a firing range, it teaches you a lot that, oh, action movies are pure cartoon. I know some of them are a bit more faithful than others, but uh, it's good. It's nice when they pay attention to that kind of stuff in in an action movie so it doesn't go straight into full exaggeration. Let's see here. Oh, yeah, but muzzle brakes, right. So muzzle brakes are just a little bit that gets added on. It does add weight, so they're not often used on handguns or shotguns, mostly rifles. But this is the thing that I'm thinking of. When I see those vents on the side of that tank barrel in the movie, it's like, especially after reading so many 90s Rob Liefeld comics, is the vented barrel shroud. It doesn't have anything to do with venting pressure gases from firing of the gun. It's there so you can hold the barrel with your other hand without touching the super hot barrel. It's like a cage around the barrel so you can hold it while at the same time providing good airflow to the barrel itself so it cools down faster. So I didn't know that. I imagine their design is mostly cosmetic, like it's it needs to have holes in it. And so air can get at the barrel but other than that you can get pretty custom or huge depending on how much you want to pimp your gun out i guess maybe i'm wrong any or if any listeners out there are avid shooters and know more about vented barrel shrouds definitely drop us a line here at the movie by minute tron uh podcast and then uh, tell me more let me know in any case 
I think I've seen them on the end of tank barrels on the tips, but I don't know if I've ever seen them halfway down the barrel or a third of the way down the barrel like this. And also, I don't know why tanks in the computer world would need them because they're shooting like energy bullets, I guess, or disruptor bullets or something like that, or artillery made of light. I'm not sure how the physics works in that world, or maybe they're just, maybe it's all like, You'd think Flynn would be able to stay three steps ahead of them since he programmed the tanks. Or maybe he would have a way to just... If he could have access to the tanks, if he could like hop out of his bike, you'd think he'd have a back door or a way to touch the tank that would just completely deprogram it and leave the driver and the, uh, the driver and the navigator just sitting there wondering what happened. That would be pretty cool. <laughs> but that's a little too overpowered, I guess. He also designed the tanks to be tanks, so maybe he didn't leave a back door. Who knows? So the pilot, the pilot of the tank, again, Eric Cord, as we went over in the last few minutes, scans through the viewfinder in the tank and says, no sign of life, looks like we got him. Now this POV of the tank is very smooth when in the shot immediately before it, it's driving over huge irregular chunks of rubble so they don't really go together. But maybe that was two different effects houses doing these two shots, or maybe they did them like six months apart or something like that. You have to forgive little things like that. Little inconsistencies. All movies have them. I wonder how it's possible to, like, he says, no sign of life, looks like we got him but he's just looking through the viewfinder. So I wonder how it's possible to ascertain death in this world. Like the only way to be sure you've killed someone is just that they're not in your field of vision anymore or they're not there anymore. There's no bodies. It's kind of like in Star Trek when you kill somebody by a phaser set to kill, they just evaporate. So like where's the evidence, right? You can just say, oh, they went out for a pack of cigarettes and they never came back. Like, well, I guess so. There's no body, so. So, like, if you walk into an empty room in Tron, it could be the site of a massacre and you'd never know. So, I don't know. I wonder what investigators are like in this world. They had a character like that in the cartoon, in the Tron cartoon. His name was Dyson. And he was a high-ranking lieutenant on the bad guy's team. And he looked sort of like a a thin Carl, well, not the, well, he just looked like Carl Sagan. Everybody was thin in that, in that cartoon. They were all exaggerated and long and stretched out. So this was like a long stretched out Carl Sagan, but he had like cheat codes. He could like scan the ground and footprints would show up, stuff like that. He was a pretty cool character, but I imagine he would be able to see if somebody had de been derezzed in the vicinity or something like that. But I mean, that brings up like, do the programs have energy signatures or something like that? Like maybe Flynn has extinctive countermeasures or something that he, as a user that gives him a cloaking ability since he's from the outside. But um, I don't know about Ram and Tron. Like, I don't know. As it is, seeing no bodies makes the tank crew think that they are successful in killing Flynn and Ram. Now, we see Flynn and Ram hiding in a nook as the tank drives by, 
and they are about five feet inside the nook as the tank drives by. And I guess one of the drawbacks of such a brightly lit world is that it's pretty hard to buy that the tank can't see them nestled just five feet away from the scene of the battle. Uh, but whatever, right? Whatever. You can't, you can't let your big brain get too into these little moments. We have another shot of Tron, uh, flying along the valley floor, and uh, with an amazing bike light cycle sound effect again. And then the camera pans up and it sucks. Carrier is right over the top of the valley, just blimping along there. Sark paces on his bridge and he says, continue pursuit of remaining conscripts. And a voice says, acknowledge, proceeding towards Sector Frontier. And I don't really understand how Tron is clearly racing along the ground in plain sight underneath Sark's carrier and Sark can't see him. Sort of takes me out of the movie a little bit. We cut to Flynn tromping around in the wilds, carrying Ram over his shoulder. And I believe this is called a fireman's carry. And you've got somebody over your shoulders like that. I love the pinstriped ground here. You can tell it's the wilds because we hear a bunch of electronic birds chirping. Really, really sweet little sounds of uh, electronic birds. He appears to be looking at a huge jumble of polygonal shapes with strange shading on some of the sides of the blocks. It's either plain, like a light blue or like a bunch of tiny dots, or the other, the pinstripes kind of thing, like they have on the ground. It's a very chaotic jumble of blocks, uh, which is kind of strange considering the order of everything else around it. Like maybe it's um, a pile of something that's been destroyed, he says, putting his pinky up to the side of his mouth. Uh, we'll We'll see, we'll find out. But that sort of chaotic look, like we were talking about with the plane in the earlier insert shot of the MCP's I.O. tower as they're looking out of the cave. Anything chaotic means it's been abandoned or it's in need of help or it's uh, not not doing that great. So when you see when you hear birds in the distance and you see this chaotic pile, it's like, OK, they're in the middle of nowhere. They're in some unmonitored place a place for rubble or something like that. So Flynn says, you're going to make it, Ram. We just got to find you a place to rest. We get a great close-up again of Tron's light cycle bombing along and coming out into a wider thoroughfare with a clear line to the MCPIO tower. I just have to reiterate, I love that light cycle sound. If there's a an audio star of the film, that's part of it, amongst many. We cut back to Flynn in the wilderness looking for a place to lay Ram down. Flynn's doing a really good job of looking exhausted here as he carries Ram around, but maybe <laughs> maybe it's not acting. Like Maybe this is take 20, and he's really done with lugging Dan Shore around. He sees a, ra- a ramp looking up to what looks like a small blue cave, so he walks up into it saying, Hang in there, Ram. This looks like a good spot. And that's the end of this minute. Not too much happening. Uh, We go over the differences between the screenplay and the novel. In the novel, it's not too different. It mentions that Flynn and Ram had actually ditched the bikes at the last second. So the bikes were probably at the bottom of the ravine, like just before they got hit by the explosion. 
which makes more sense because if there was a direct hit to the bikes and it was strong enough to destroy the bikes, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that Ram and Flynn are still alive. But whatever. It mentions that a it mentions a few levels of types of land in the grid in the novel. It talks about wilds and flatlands and canyons and deserts, that sort of thing. And in the movie, it all looks pretty uniform, but it's supposed to be, I think, a bit more different than it is. But I can imagine, in a design sense, a conceptual design sense, like how do you make a desert not super boring, you know, or What's the difference between a, a canyon and um, the wilds? Like, like what, do you, what do you do when you've got just a few lines to work with? How do you create a whole bunch of differences? So I, I get that they don't look super different inside the, inside the movie. But the other thing was that when the tank is talking to Sark about how Flynn and Ram have been derezzed and Tron has escaped and they're examining the rubble of the crash site. Sark's carrier descends to be right above the tanks and is also scanning the crash site. And they all come to the conclusion that Flynn and Ram are dead and that Tron is somewhere else. While Flynn and Ram are hiding in their nook four feet away from (laughs) <laughs> the crash site. So I would have a lot more trouble buying that Sark can't see them in that circumstance. So I'm kind of glad that they they cut that and made it a little different. I guess Sark is just going on visuals like uh, like the tank seems to be, which I guess is a good rule to have. Otherwise, the movie would be over right now. The end. They're over there. Get them. In the screenplay, it's pretty much the same, except Ram is a bit more conscious and acting with Fl- interacting with Flynn a little bit, talking to him. He's not just limp and silent. And also, also there's a scene of Sark gloating that he's going to please the MCP with the news that the user is dead. He's like, oh, good. Flynn's dead. For like the third or fourth time, he's like, oh, that user, I'm so glad he's gone. I thought he was a threat. Oh no, he's alive again. Uh, so pretty minor changes in the screenplay. And that takes us to the end of minute 53. I would love to hear your thoughts on the movie and how things are going so far. So please, if you want to get in touch, check out more of us at tronologicallyspeaking.com. Drop us a line on Twitter at tronologicallyspeaking. Send us an email at tronologicallyspeaking at gmail.com or join us on Facebook at the Tronologically Speaking Minute by Minute listeners page. Again, shout out to Pond5.com for the music. And special thanks to the Star Wars Minute that started it all. Go on over to MoviesByMinutes.com and see if your favorite movie is there. And if it isn't, consider doing one yourself. They're a very inclusive and encouraging community. And now we are at the end. And so I must say, three, two, one. End of line. (laughs) 